Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Uncommon Comedy Podcast. I am your host, Brian April. You can find all of our podcasts on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or you can watch the video versions on Facebook and or YouTube. Uh, so be sure and check us out. If you have any comments uh, or questions about the, the episodes, love to hear your feedback. Uh, you can reach out to me. Uh, you can find me on youtube.com slash comedy Brian, uh, facebook.com slash comedy Brian. Or if you want to talk, interact, I live stream uh, several times a week on twitch.tv. Uh, so the link is right there, twitch.tv slash comedy Brian. Uh, feel free to check me out. Um, so we're going to jump right into it. Uh, my comedian this week is uh, an amazing, amazingly funny woman. She makes me laugh so hard. Uh, she performs all over. Again, I, I say this every week, but it's such—it's so true. We have such great comedians on here. Uh, You—you've heard her voice everywhere. You've seen her um, all over. She's one of the funniest people that uh, I know, and I love working with her. And you're going to enjoy her too. So please welcome Rachel McDowell. Rachel. Yay! That was a very nice intro. Thanks, Brian. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad to have you here. Thanks for taking some time. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled. This is the first makeup I've put on since May 13th. I realized the first <laughs> time I blow dried my hair. And wow, <laughs> I am I am still uh, have not worn pants since uh, COVID started. So, and I'm I'm looking forward to that that streak continuing. So I, I'm <laughs> happy about that. Uh, so one of the things I love uh, about working with you, Rachel, is uh, one you work clean, uh, which is which is great, uh, but. It's it's not it's so funny. You are so animated, uh, and you have great facial expressions, and you just have this instant likability, and just everybody just seems to love you as soon as you go up there and just open your mouth. And uh, it's so fun to just watch you go up and, and work uh, work your magic that you do. It's, it's I love having you. So thank you. That's really very nice. Uh, you're very welcome. Um, so we're going to just jump right into it. So uh, who or what inspired you to start doing uh, stand-up? Um, I think I was like class clown. I was always funny. Uh -huh. And my first job out of college, I hit a really low point. So I was very, very, very depressed. And I got like a dream job that I thought, but I made so little money that, you know, I couldn't even afford to live with my mother rent-free. Like, so it was just a really low point in my life. And... Um, so I worked at the a museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and girls I worked with were taking this class at the community college, and they asked me, one of them asked me to join, and I had nothing. Like, it was like, I called it my quarter-life crisis. Like, I, I couldn't afford to go out. Like, I was just sad. And this, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my brother, actually, it was six classes for 30 bucks, and I couldn't afford that. Wow. <laughs> and this is a job job. This was like a college or college degree required job that I got working in a museum, but it was, it was just, I mean, uh, yeah, I couldn't afford to do anything. And so my brother paid for it and we don't have that kind of relationship, but he was just like the you poor sap of a human being. <laughs> do something So you'll get out of your purple sweatsuit. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so that's what it is. Do, you, do usually people have more inspiring stories like that? Uh, yeah. than that I mean, they range all over the place. <laughs> um, so, but then I did that, and people got so excited. So it gave me something like at that time in my life, I didn't travel, I didn't have anything to small talk. So when people like it, it's post college. 
uh, it should be so exciting. I didn't have a boyfriend. I didn't have anything when people said, how are you? <laughs> not good guys. And so, but when I said I did stand up, people got so excited. So it gave me something to talk about. It gave me mm. something to say like, well, I took this class, what? And everybody just went nuts. And that's honestly why I kept doing it was because people kept asking me about it and I had to have something to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so you're just kind of like, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll do it. Like, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> because it, I just remember thinking like, is this it until I retire? Like, do I just work these jobs that I can't, that again, like were good jobs, but that you, like, it was like, this is, this is life. This is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I always feel, feel for kids when they get out of college because you're promised the world. Go to school, get a degree. You're going to make so much money. And it seemed like so much money. And just, it was 20, 25, 20, comma, $500. $20,500 is what I made. Wow. Um, and yeah, it was, it was rough. And you're like, this is too much money. I want to get into comedy. It would have been a good career move. Like, hey, I can make 50 bucks and nachos. <laughs> I'm leaving. Exactly. That's funny. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's so funny when you're, you're early and you're trying to find out what you do. And you, you said, like, for me, I remember specifically there was a time when I was working a normal job and I woke up and I was like, wait a minute, I don't have summer vacations anymore? You mean I have to do this for the rest of my life? Like, this yeah. is terrible. Yeah. But I, I totally, totally uh, can relate to that. Yeah, like, um, America was my the highlight of my day when I was <laughs> 24 years old. I'm like, this this isn't going to be long last. <laughs> I, can't this. I can't love Good Morning America this much in my early 20s. <laughs> That's hysterical. Uh, do you remember your first show? Oh, yeah. Um, so I took the class, the comedy mm -hmm. the class, and it was um, and it, it was run by a guy that I never saw again. So in, so he had in comedy, if people want to get into comedy, comedy is 95% confidence. So this person didn't end up being like that respected at all in the, in the local comedy scene, but he just thought he was real confident and thought he could teach this class. Um, and he did, he did a great job. And, and so our first class was at a bar, or our first show was at a bar and grill. It was our final exam. And we did the, like we, it was however many of us that lasted. So maybe we started with 12 and ended with eight. And it was all friends and family. It was very small. But so everybody loved it because it was just, they all knew what they were there for. Um, so it seemed really easy. <laughs> and then that mm -hmm. was my first show. Do you remember your first real show? Well, Because um, <laughs> we all have that experience of like you bring your friends or whatever and you'll, it yeah. goes well. And then you have that first one where you go by yourself and you don't know anybody. And... So I was very lucky. So I, my first real show, um, so I took that class, waited a year, and then people kept asking me about it. So, and I even got a job for it. I got a better job because I put it on my resume that I did stand-up comedy. Meanwhile, I took one class and did a <laughs> at a bar and grill. And, like, and uh, so then there was a competition at the local Funny Boat. Uh, do you know the World Series of Comedy? Mm -hmm. 
Joe Lowers. Okay, so this was the very first World Series of Comedy. Joe Lowers comes from Pittsburgh, and so he started it there. So I did that, but then again, that was another wonderful experience because again, it's friends and family. It's shows are packed. It was great. So first show, like on my, I always think Brian that like the first three years of stand up, you have to be delusional to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember like going all by myself and. I don't remember having a bad experience. So it's sort wow. of how you introduce, no, not ever. I did definitely have bad experiences, but like my first real show, um, I quickly got like a local agent who booked bar and grills all over like West Virginia and Pittsburgh <laughs> and Ohio. So you drove with other comedians and, you know, being in Los Angeles now, I, I crave those audiences that don't really know comedy and they're just out to have a good time Mm -hmm. And I did my Britney Spears impression. They thought I was a genius. <laughs> so, but because I think I, like how you introed me is like, I am energetic and I'm friendly and I'm nice. So I think, I hope, I think crowds like me. So they don't want, and not, not all the time. Like sometimes crowds, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't work. But I don't remember like my first crash and burn was during this time. So during, <laughs> during the World Series of Comedy. So the World Series of Comedy happens, they have an amateur track and they have a pro track. So I'm on the amateur track and I just get this job and one of the guys I work with is so funny. He's one of those naturally funny people that there's always 10 people around him laughing. So he always wanted to do stand up. So we decided to join to do this together. So we go and do this competition and our night, we stack the crowd. It's like our whole company. Like you can pretty much walk to the club from our company. The president of the company is there, um, and we and people made signs like we annihilated. Oh, wow. So we thought that we were the most talented human beings. Like we, I we probably like we would just sit and giggle in conference rooms about how amazing we were and how it was going to be no time that he was discovered for SNL and I was discovered for this and. I mean, we were probably the two funniest people in existence. Like, in the, and we believed it. Um, and so part of winning, so the first place went to a local kid that was really putting in the work, like was really an open micer every Tuesday doing his thing. Then Mark, my friend got second and I got third. So woo, we were amazing. And part of winning was you got to then open for the pro competition. So the pro conference, so our shows were on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, packed crowds, which doesn't usually happen, um, but because it was a competition. So packed crowds, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, everybody already loves us. <laughs> so Saturday, we go to dinner, my college friends come in. I don't even think about my routine. Like we don't, I don't do any mental prep. Like I am so talented. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it, I'm not nervous. I'm, ounce and like with the first time when we did so well like I almost had a I almost passed out I was so nervous but then it went so well like and I'm so good so <laughs> I didn't uh so we get up and they announce and since I got third I go first so we're gonna open the show tonight and the pros are amazing the pros uh like Mike Berbiglia did this in the early days I don't know if he was on this show but they were young 
rap, like road comics that were amazing. Um, but I don't remember who they were because I was only focused on me. But I know I do remember my Perbiglia is doing really well in one of the early ones. And so I go up first. So Joe Lowers goes up and does his thing. And then we're going to have the amateur, the winners of the amateur competition open up. Now, where this show was, it was in a pretty, like it was an area that parking is expensive. Um, there's lots of big things that happen. So there were three events in this small area. So there was no parking. So everybody got late. Everybody was late. The club doesn't care if you're late, but they still charge you for the tickets. So like people that got in, their friends couldn't, and they still had to pay 40 bucks for their two tickets. So people were hammered and mad. But I mean, I didn't notice. So no reading the room, <laughs> just no problems. Um, and I get up and I do my set, the same set that I had done on Tuesday. And it was like, just deafeningly silent. Like, it was like, like you wish that there was a cricket somewhere. Like there was no crickets. There was not an ice cube. It was horrific. And remember my college friends are there. Like this is Rach's big moment. <laughs> humiliating and I just remember my lips are sweating just thinking about it and I just remember I wanted the stage to open up and swallow me I think it was three it wasn't more than five minutes but I think it was three minutes of the longest three minutes of my life and I got up I got off stage just like no color soaking wet (laughs) and Mark my friend was still so arrogant like he didn't realize that this applied to him too. So I remember him like, better luck next time, like still super cocky. And then he got up and he died just as horribly, (laughs) just as terribly. And then the kid that had been doing the work, the one that got first place, he did all right, he did well. Oh, but after I got off stage, someone in the front row goes, when are you bringing up the real comedians? Oh. <laughs> Jen Lowers was like, hey, be nice. Like, <laughs> it was horrible. Oh, that's brutal. Was, yeah. So so when I said like I didn't have bad shows, it was the way you asked you asked the question like first real show on your own. Yeah. So that didn't apply, but my first real show without a stacked crowd didn't go well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny it's how that humbling, happens. It's a humbling sport that we play. Oh, it, it definitely is. You feel great. And then comedy, as I always say, comedy punches you in the face. Uh, um, so were there any uh, comedians that you were uh, into that inspired you? Like, I know you just kind of did it because you had nothing else going on and it seemed like a good lie uh, to do. So uh, were there any comics that you watched like growing up that kind of. Um, oh, my God. Why am I? How, how am I flaking on the name? Give me one second. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you know, the with the with the, the puppeteer. Oh, uh, Jeff Dunham. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought he was brilliant, and I um, so Pittsburgh had a funny bone. That's where the competition was, and Pittsburgh had an improv. And Jeff Dunham came. So I remember being in like footed pajamas with my brother. Like and Jeff Dunham being on TV and us crying. Like I thought he was the greatest thing ever. Wow. So when he came to the improv, so you weren't allowed to do both clubs. The improv didn't care. The funny bone very much cared. So even at my level, you weren't allowed to double dip at all. Um, 
which I don't agree with. I think if I was a headliner, absolutely. But is it whatever? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's city to city has the same, same argument. But uh, so he came to the improv. The improv is this beautiful club. It was a new club. And so I saw the headshots on the wall and I went and I got my headshots taken by like my mom's friend and I printed them out and I approached the manager and I was like, I sure would like to open for Jeff Dunham. And I handed him like shake my hand shaking, like handed him my new headshots. And he was like, okay, sure. <laughs> he was like, but we don't put MC's headshots on the wall. And I was like, okay. So like I $150 I didn't have. <laughs> it was like, so I got to open for Jeff Dunham. Wow. And that was really neat. Uh, yeah, so that, and then, then I made the leap to the improv in Pittsburgh, which treated me so well. And what was beautiful as a new comedian in this tiny market, but a real market, like Pittsburgh is a great city. So to have two comedy clubs and people like Mike Birbiglia coming out through, like Jay Leno way before my time, but Jay Leno loved the funny bone. Drew Carey loved performing in Pittsburgh. Um, so we had great, like we have a great comedy pedigree coming out of Pittsburgh. Um, and, but so then I became a regular host at the improv. And so then I'm opening for big, big people and seeing what comedy, and that's very rare. So for your audience, it doesn't usually happen that quickly. Um, but because I was in a small market and I worked clean then mm -hmm. I, and, and I had high energy, I was a good host. So I got hosting work really quickly and like, Frank Caliendo, I remember I opened for him and I'm not a sports person at all. So I had no idea who Frank Caliendo was. And this is a long time ago. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then I just like roll up like 20 minutes before showtime and people are wrapped around the building. I'm like, what is this? And <laughs> he blew me away. Like I had never seen anything like him. I remember near the end, like I would always watch, I watched every show all the time, but especially with him, like I would rush to the bathroom and just watch every show. And he, um, like he, a guy got up to go to the bathroom and I was like, you don't want to go to the bathroom now. I'm like, I made, I made <laughs> back to his seat. Uh, and afterwards he was like, thanks. He's like, yeah, you don't want to go to the <laughs> um, but So I got to work with great people. I got to do guest sets for David Tell. I got wow. to meet Louis CK. I didn't get to work with him, but I got to meet him as a comedian there. Um, Gary Goldman, I did a whole week with Gary Goldman and we went out like hey, he came out with my friends and I every night, like that kind of stuff. And I didn't yeah. realize what a unique experience that was for a new comedian. And it was pretty spectacular. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. You mentioned Gary, because um, I started in Boston. And so mm. I get to work with you know a lot of people before they get uh, really Boston big and famous as well. Boston would be a pretty serious comedy town, right? You think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very more like I don't know that like it's yeah I don't know that Pittsburgh like studied the craft as well like Pittsburgh we were club comics we um, I'm trying to think so it wasn't quite as cerebral as I would imagine it would be in Boston. Mm. Yeah, it, there, well, and there's also this like this level of of Boston comics who have stayed there and have been there for 40, 50 years and they just murder <laughs> night after night after night. And so you watch that and you learn and there's that, 
that pedigree, uh, even with the clubs, it was like you have to have a certain amount of respect for the audience. You have to have a certain amount of respect for the show. You know, uh, no crowd work. You know, you have to wear a watch to go on stage to track your own time. Like it was all these, you know, things. And so, uh, but I remember Gary and we we did some of the the worst rooms. You know, you can imagine we did a place called Angie's Clams, which uh, I always just remember just doing this little like tiny little seafood bar with uh you know gary goldman and they go on and do big things and so you just see a bunch of other comics there i won't get into all that stuff because it's not about me it's about you well, um, no, it, it is so it's such a special thing yeah and it's, it's cool you just see you know these people that you kind of go and do all these things with and uh, especially the early years you just kind of like taking it all in and it's all exciting and then we tend to get a little jaded and a little yeah. more like okay it becomes more of a business we start to understand you know that it's it's business it's not a hobby it's you know and you you evolve and grow when do you but, I have a theory on that when do you think that hits when do you make that decision as a <sighs> for me it was probably about five years in I'd okay say. my theory is for I always tell people four years is when you start to realize because it gets a little less fun yeah the delusional parts over and mm -hmm. you've done enough that you get that it, it can be pretty rough and it's not just super fun and your friends come. Like at this right. point, you're sick of your friends coming. They're sick of seeing you do the same jokes. Like it's like, okay, either I'm gonna take it up or I'm gonna quit doing this. Yeah, it was, was cool. I would, yeah, the friends thing burns out in about a year, uh, within the year I'd say, uh, depending on how often you you call on them. But I mean, I was, I was putting in the work, I was doing, you know, couple hundred shows every year from the beginning so yeah. and i was trying to, to do that and i just wanted to get good um uh, and get consistent and then i think about three and a half years it kind of clicked for me on stage and i was kind of like oh i kind of get this and then you know i started just kind of going up and being like okay i'm good i'm consistent i'm consistent and then another year or so kind of was like all right how do i you know what do i do with this now so uh, how do I go up in levels and turn this into, you know, uh, a career? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that's when it gets. So how long did it take before um, things clicked for you? I think they clicked pretty quickly. Like, I think yeah. I was just, I was bright eyed and <gasps> so excited all the time <laughs> um, in the beginning. And I think that was when Last Comic Standing had first come out. So then when those people rolled through, that was so exciting. Like, people on TV and <laughs> that I'm hanging out with and um, Alonzo Bowden I got to work with. Just all of it was so exciting that I was in. Um, so, well, so I told you after that horrible show, so after that horrible show that I'm brand new, so this is like my third time on stage is this horrible show. And I had like a come to Jesus moment. Like I remember it was like, okay, Rachel. And the, the local comics loved that my friend and I burned so hard. Like they were all there and they just soaked it up because we did stack the crowd, but we didn't know, we, we didn't know right. what we did, but we did. <laughs> and so they were not friendly. And some of them were in my class, the, the community college class I took. Um, so I had a little bit of knowledge of them already and camaraderie with them already. But, you know, when it comes down to it, they weren't, yeah, good. Like they loved when it is shot and Freud all over our faces for them. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember being like, okay, Rachel, you either quit, lick your wounds, and never, ever, ever do this again, which would have been fine. Like, that was an absolute option. Or you go to the open mic on Tuesday, and you start doing the slog. 
And I, so that very next Tuesday, so the show was Saturday, that Tuesday, I showed up at the open mic and then became an open micer from there. So that I think was like the moment where it was like, you can walk away from this now, no problem. Or you can try, put in the work. Um, yeah. But as far as like as a career, well, and I didn't think about it as a career. So in Pittsburgh, then, I mean, you didn't, you did what you loved as a hobby. It was never going to be a career. It was just a reprieve from my regular, like working life. And um, so it was just a fun thing to do and a way to be around exciting people. And um, so it didn't have anything to do with the money, obviously. Right. <laughs> right. It didn't have anything to do. Uh, I never dreamed of making it a career until many years later. Yeah, it's interesting because you get in that three, four, five year window and then all of a sudden the people that you're doing it with, that's where the attrition starts happening. People start dropping off. Some people go ahead. Um, all of a sudden that big group of circle or of friends or whatever that you thought you had all starts to vanish uh, because you're no longer on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the other comics as well. And then you're no longer performing on the same shows because you're evolving and you know, you don't have two features on the same show. You don't have two headliners on the same show. So all of that stuff starts to, you start being away from your friends and you start being away from these people that made it fun and yeah. social. And then that's when that real like slog of like, oh, okay, this is, this is kind of a solo sport here, you know? Yep. And yep. so that's, yeah, that's when I think a lot of people start to go, okay, well, is this what I really want? So I think that's kind of why that transition starts to happen for me anyway, it seems logically. Yeah, I think there, there's beginner's luck or that de delusion. And then that wears off and it's like, this is not easy. Like this yeah. is not an easy, fun path. Like it's not <laughs> even that much fun. You know, like that, <laughs> sometimes it's not even that much fun. Um, but it's a, it's a world that it's a whole universe that we get to speak our own language. Like my favorite thing about standup is the, is, being befriending other comics and people that are nothing like me. Like I remember I met a Seattle comic at, at an event and it was like, he was probably 20 years older than me, had three kids had been in jail. And <laughs> it was like a different, he was a different race. And we would giggle on the phone, like schoolgirls. Like we formed this deep friendship. So we had nothing in common, not even the cities we lived in, but comedy, like we were friends. And we mm -hmm. got things that my other friends didn't get. And like, and that was so, that meant so much to me. I had never had a friendship with someone that was so different in age and in background. And it was like, oh man, <laughs> we, we would talk on the phone for hours. And that's, that's what it's worth. Like when you click with people, it is so much fun. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause you say that like one of my best friends in comedy, Mateen, as you, you know, Mateen, yeah. we are so different. You know, so so different, but what brings us together is comedy, and it and it can be anywhere, and it, it can also be from the highest level with someone like a Jay Leno, uh, or or even an open mic. Like you just, there's that bond of like you get up on stage and you subject yourself to this this amount of work and this amount of you know stress and all of these things. There's that instant like, yeah, you can go talk to to somebody and totally relate. It's so cool. I love yeah. I love. And I, I listen to like I belong in this room. Like I yeah have a friend who is friends with Bill Burr and we went to the comedy, like we were together and she was like, Hey, Bill Burr's at the comedy store. Do you want to go? And I was like, no, I don't want to be 
one of the like ninth in line to be near this man. Like I think he is phenomenal, but I'm not that person. I don't want to fan girl Bill right. Burr. And then I looked at her phone and the text was from Bill Burr saying, Hey, I'm at the comedy store. Do you? And I was like, wait, did Bill Burr tell you that Bill Burr was at the comedy <laughs> store? And she was like, yeah. So then we went and we got to go in a special room and he was so normal and real. And it was like, Oh, are you a comic? And I could look him in the eye and say, yes. And then we had a conversation like normal people. Like, yeah, he looked me in the eye and talked to me. And I looked him in the eye back and talked back. And it was like, I don't know what I said. Like, you know, but it was just like, I am your peer, which is very exciting. Yeah, that's a very cool thing. Yeah. Um, so what is the uh, best piece of advice that you've received about comedy? Okay. Oh, that I received about comedy. I think honestly is have fun. Um, and I need to remind myself of this now. So when like, is it right where we're talking about? Like when it starts getting more serious or, and I remember like right before I got on that first stage for the competition and my company's president was there and I was about to like panic attack and someone went, have fun. I was like, that did not even occur to me. So when mm -hmm. I can go on stage and relax, like that's when I'm funny. When I am confident and I know, like I think when, one of my jokes, like if I go to a crowd that I know is going to love me, like we did that winery show mm -hmm. uh, and I, and it's like, okay, candy from a baby. Like <laughs> give me happy, drunk, middle, like middle to upper class, braid haired white people, <sighs> wine drinkers. It's just the, they're, those are my people. Right. And um, so I feel like I'm giving them, like, it's like I'm giving them presents that I took time, picked the perfect present for them. I wrapped it beautifully. I made a really special gift that I'm going to give to them, and I know they're going to love it. So it's like that. And if I could harness that confidence for every show, when I go to a show, which is a bunch of college guys, like, like bros, I don't feel that way. Like, they're mm -hmm. not, like, they don't care about the wrapping I put on this gift, and it's probably not going to fit them anyway. <laughs> so my right. I bought the wrong thing. And, and But sometimes if I can talk myself out of that and I can maybe change the gift up a little bit. Um, but when I can just have fun, because that's, you forget, you forget, or I, yeah, I think we all forget yeah. that we got into this for fun. Yeah. And you need to maintain that. So it's a very simple piece of advice, but I hear it. And, and then the other one, in my, like one of my first hosting gigs was with a man ch named Chaz Elsner. Do you know Chaz? He's not a by name. Big cruise ship guy. He's still around and he was so energetic. So he got up and he did that again. I watched every show. He gave the same show with the same energy, regardless of the crowd. And he'd be soaked with sweat and he'd get them every time. And I was like, how do you do that? And he was like, cause it's my job. And I was so that's the exact opposite of my first piece of advice, just go have fun. But then when you're feeling cranky and you're mad and the other comic is late and you know, like when you're thinking, it's like, hey, it's my job to go get up there and be happy. And right. or the way I deliver is to be happy, to be energetic, even if I don't want to be there, it's my job. And even if I'm not getting paid, it's my job, get up there and do it. Mm -hmm. And that's so important because so many people um, think it's about them and it really isn't. No. You know, it's, it's about the crowd. And I always say, cause you know, 
sometimes we have great shows with, you know, 1500 people. Sometimes we have shows with 15 people and, you know, some comics are just like, oh, you know, I just drove two hours uh, for this. And it's only, there's only eight people here. And I always just try to say, you know, they get the same show, whether it's eight or 800, Yep. you know, uh, sure. You adjust the, the volume of your, your energy, but they still get, they still get the exact same energy that I would give. Yep. Uh, and this, but it's just a different, um, volume, so to speak, if that makes sense. Oh, so yeah. And that, that was something I remember seeing someone and as a new MC and we had a horrible crowd and he destroyed them. It was probably five people. They didn't love me. They didn't love the feature. And he got up and he gave them the same show that he gave them, but he changed it. So you have like, so and I think civilians don't understand that it's harder to perform for eight people than 1500. Yeah. So your common sense would tell you 1500 would be terrifying, but eight is way scarier than because you, it's all energy. So you don't want to be the only one laughing, you know, like it's all, Oh, it's horrible. But then he was like, we, and the, I think the feature of that show was kind of ragging on the crowd. Um, and he's like, you're never mad at the people who are here. Like right. you're people that are sitting at home. These guys came. And I remember being like, oh, of course. Like, and so now whenever I see comedians belittling a small crowd, it's like, oh. Yeah. Wrong. Yeah, don't blame the ones who showed up. Right. Thank you, guys. Thank you so yeah. much for coming. Like, you're the coolest eight people I could imagine right now. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's the, yeah, I, I never understood why people blame the ones that show up. Like, no, they're here. They're here to have fun. So go have fun. Yeah. You know? And it, it's. Yeah, there's so many weird things about that. And, uh, you know, just the, the numbers alone, when you're dealing with a smaller crowd, it's so much harder because everybody's sense of humor is different. And so there's there's going to be a percentage of people that don't uh, either like you or get your material or know what you're talking about. And so obviously, if you have a crowd of 1500, that even if you're playing to, if you're hitting on 20% of that, <laughs> you know, that's 300 people that are going to be laughing at you. And then the rest will be caught up in the laughter. Laughter is contagious. But if you go ahead and do that with eight people and only 20%, you know, you're now at, was it two, <laughs> two people laughing and it just, it gets very awkward. So it's a, it's a much harder, uh, much harder deal. I always but, appreciate, and I think you do do this when a producer will say like, just go do what you want it. Like, just go do time. If you want to get off early, you can get off early. And I don't think I've ever gotten off early in that situation, but by someone telling, I know that people do and it's okay. Yeah. I think it's way worse to stand up there and everyone's miserable so you can get your 20 minutes. Like I think a club <laughs> right. producer, a club owner is going to want the show to be better, even if it's shorter. And I'm not speaking as a headliner. I'm speaking as an MC or a feature. Get off. <laughs> yeah. You're not doing well and the crowd is tight and everyone knows it. Producer knows it, club owner, um, like every other comics, everybody knows it's not going well. Get off the stage. I mean, yeah. not, after a respectable effort. Uh -huh. Yeah, if you're if you're supposed to do 20 minutes and you do 4. Like, yeah, no. 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 <laughs> at least at least fight for like 12. Of course. <laughs> and, I, yeah, and I think you still do your 25 if everybody's not suffering. Right. But it's just that permission to go like, okay, let me go do the best I can uh, versus, okay, because timing is different. If I have 20 minutes and nobody's laughing, that 20 minutes is going to be sucked up in 12. So right. you have to 
account for that. And uh, yeah, and sometimes people just don't like you. Well, yeah, and there's the, there there are cases where you know you have to do that time, whether it's like a casino or you know something that's contractually obligated. Uh, so I don't know if you do this because I know you do a lot of corporate work. Uh, in my contract, I say up to, mm. you know, or between. So I give myself that thirty to sixty, you know, so that if it's not going great, I don't have to be, you know, because some some people get it and don't care, but some people are like, no, we, we're paying you for an hour, and you need to do sixty minutes. Well, so for a casino, the whole reason they don't care if you're funny. So I think right. what I just said does not apply in a casino. Yeah, like, you know, they want people off the floors, spending money on drinks, getting a break, and then going back to the floors. Or I like there, it's a different business in the casino world. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's actually the opposite because they you don't do more than, you know, you do not do more than twenty minutes. Twenty zero zero, you are done. Yeah, they want because they want them back on the floor. Yeah, yeah. so I don't know what I said. They want them off the floor, but they want so we're giving you entertainment. But they want you to do like for a casino, it's bigger business. For a casino, I do exactly what I'm told. Mm -hmm. um, I always do exactly what I'm told. But I feel I feel like casinos are more black and white. You're here. We don't, we don't care really how it goes. In some cases, just do the time. Right, and so then you just kind of you suck it up and you take the the hits. Well, um, but casinos have such diverse crowds. You know, like it's. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the other thing you have to battle with that is, you know, now you get somebody who's down $1,500 in three hours. Yep. Who is angry. Yep. Who is very angry. You either have them, they're either really happy or they're really angry. There's generally no middle of the road uh, crowds with casinos. Yep. <laughs> and you have pockets, you know, these people are up, you know, $700. They're, they're excited. These people are down 2000. They're not excited. And so, you know, there's that whole dynamic as well and how you, you know, try to do that. And these people are from the Midwest and these people are from the Northeast and they're from the South. And so there's so many different uh, little puzzle pieces to play with that it, I just love. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, the other thing that I, I always find interesting too is um, to me, it's, it's about the show. You know, it's always about the importance of the show. So that's why, you know, if it's going to be a smaller show or whatever, I go, yeah, if you, if you, you know, if it's not going great and you want to get off a little early, go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, but it's just about giving the best show for people, giving that honest effort and, you know, just uh, trying to do what you can uh, for the club, you know, or for whoever it is that you're doing. So, yeah, it always varies on, on where the setup is as far as like being flexible. But I think just having that, just go, look, just go have fun. Yeah. Have a good time, and that's what I was going to say. That permission brings back the fun. Yeah, like, and it's like okay, let's just see what let's 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 experiment. Let's see how this goes. Yeah, let's throw this and let me try this. And so for the fifteen hundred people, I know I am scripted. I know mm -hmm. exactly what I'm going to do. But for eight people, you best not be scripted. Like they, if you go on polished, ugh, they're so bored. So you have to chat with them, and you have to have fun, and uh, yeah, just having permission to play and see where it goes can really turn out some, turn out some magic, I think. Absolutely. So what is your writing process like? So during quarantine, zero. <laughs> during quarantine, <laughs> writing in angry uh, political rants uh, to my right-wing friends and family, but I write them privately and then I delete them or I keep them. So I, I try not to engage too much, but my heart, 
engages a lot. So I've been like, you know, this, this quarantine has been so hard, the state of the world. So funny hasn't been in it for me, mm-hmm. but normally it's in like when I'm at a party and I say something and everybody laughs and I go, okay, that was funny. So let me, let me write that down. Like something like I was at a bachelorette party and, <laughs> and I'm not, I listen to podcasts incessantly. I don't listen to a lot of music. I'm married to a composer, music editor, like music, like music is his life. And I'm a top 40 from the eighties. Give me 90 hits from the nineties. And I'm as happy as can be. Like, like I don't have, <laughs> I don't have sexy music tastes. I don't have sexy music opinions. Um, and so I was at a part, we were at a bachelorette party and I was playing Lizzo. I think I was introducing Lizzo to like the crowd hadn't really heard of Lizzo yet. So then they thought that I knew music and they were like, oh, Rachel, you DJ. And I said something like, you know, like, listen, I, I kept trying to defer it. And then it was like, look, I can't do it. If we were, if you wanted me to DJ true crime podcast, I'm all over it. And they laughed and I was like, oh, there, that's a joke right there. Like, so, so that's usually where it'll stem from. If I still more so than me driving and observing something funny, it's more in conversations. And then I'll like write it down and work it out. And one of the things when I'm writing, um, I had gotten really fit a while ago. Like I had lost a bunch of weight and exercised all the time. And a trainer told me, he was like, once you can run on the treadmill for eight minutes, you can run forever. And I took that eight minutes and I put it to writing. So it's like, so I will set a timer for eight minutes. And um, the fitness is out of it now. But <laughs> a timer for eight minutes, and I shut I shut off my Wi-Fi, and I'll sit there, and I have to I cannot do another thing for eight minutes. And that and eight minutes is pretty long as a stand-up comedian, you know. Eight minutes, yeah. and yeah, you can get a lot accomplished in eight minutes. And um, whether it's good or bad, I just have to focus for eight minutes on. Hmm. And then if it keeps you if you're in the groove you can just go go on as long as it is but you don't have that chore of like i gotta write for two hours no that doesn't work for me i will every ellen degeneres did a bit on one of her specials where it was talking about procrastination and Mm -hmm. she's like i was really working on procrastination and then you know i saw my cat and i sat down and i just gave her a quick pat and then 45 minutes later (laughs) (laughs) so you tell me i and it it, says i think it's I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I'm seeing that it's a personality trait. Just like when you tell me if I can get off stage, I'm not going to get off stage, but I just need to know I can stop if I don't. Yeah. So eight minutes is long, but eight minutes is also very palatable. So it's going to be over. So just buckle down for eight minutes and then I can check social media and see which family members are upsetting me. (laughs) I can check, uh, see what ridiculous memes are posted and then I can go back for eight minutes and either develop a new idea or work a little bit harder on the other idea, mm-hmm. flush it out. When do you feel like it's a, you, you bring it on stage and like how long do you think from when you bring it on stage to where you feel like it's consistent? I'll, that- I'll bring it on stage right away, pretty much. Okay. So I'll bring it on stage like if I'm driving. So another thing I'll do is again, I listen to podcasts all the time. So when I go to a show, if it's San Diego, I allow myself more time to listen to podcasts because it's such a long drive. Mm-hmm. But when I, I'll hit a certain point and then it's like, okay, when I'm an hour out, I have to turn off everything. And so I can think. And when I allow myself to think, I, I'm so smart. I'm like, I'm so funny. I have, 
It's like if I just tune out stuff in my brain, I have all these great thoughts. So usually right before a show, I'll have a thought. Like, cause you always look, crowds love when you say something about them. So, uh, and usually it's the easiest, like it's not a joke, but they, it, it just, they, they love it. And um, so I will, uh, so I shut down, I shut down any kind of, um, any kind of distractions like an hour out. So I'm only, I'm going through my set list. I'm thinking about it. Maybe I'll listen to an old set that I've done. Um, but then I, so I will put new material in the middle. So I know like I'll find a good spot to try something new that where I know I'll, I'll have just hit a good stride where I'd be confident, throw it out, see if it works. If not, they just love me. So they'll forgive me and we can go right. back to something that I know is tried and true. Um, but then it can take a long time. Like I call it fully baked for a bit to be fully baked. I would honestly say two years. I <laughs> like where, mm. where you learn like what the eyebrow does or if I go, huh? And I, like if I change my inflection here, it got a huge laugh. Yeah, so I would say two years before the conception to fully baked. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty good. I, would, I always said, uh, for me, I always felt like about six months of being on stage like five times a week mm -hmm. of just constant tinkering and you know like you said the eyebrow and the, the tweak and the inflection and the hand movement and the body you know all the the little little things in there so yeah it's a it's so because people are like oh aren't you sick of that i'm like sick of it i'm still working on it like i'm still you know because they go oh you know, i'm doing some new stuff and i'm like yeah i'm, I'm trying to like because for me it was like build an act and then fine tune the heck out of it you know yeah. just and that's just always how I've been. And that's just kind of the, the state I was raised in. So I'm always like, I have jokes I've been doing for years and I'm still trying to like, all right, I've only run it like a thousand times now. Is this still you know, good enough sample and uh, trying to tweak it? Cause I want it to work for everybody, every audience, every situation. And that's, uh, so you're always testing it, testing it, testing it. And I, I just love that idea of like constant testing. Um, we are hanging out with uh, Rachel McDowell uh, very, very funny. You can follow uh, her. You can check out her website at rachelmcdowell.com. That's R-A-C-H-E-L, one L, M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L, uh, mm -hmm. -E two L's. Uh, and you can follow Rachel on Instagram at, and Twitter at Rachel A. McDowell. Uh, so definitely check that out. Um, so now we start getting into the, some of the, the fun questions. Uh, it's my favorite question. What is your worst show ever? I think we covered that. So the word, oh, okay. I'll take it up a level. I'll take it up a level. Okay. So that was the worst intro show. Worst show ever would be, I have two, I have two that come to mind. So one would be right after that competition. Also part of winning the competition was you got to MC for a week for a real show. So, and you had to hassle the owner. The owner was not into it. And you just had to, I had to hassle and hassle and hassle and hassle. So finally he gave me my first week. Um, it was in February, which was like almost a year after I'd done the show. Like I waited for, like he made me wait forever. So my roommate and I were moving. I lived in Pittsburgh. It was the middle of a blizzard and we're moving blizzard. And this is my first week. And I have a real job, like a hard job that I have to do. Um, and my first week doing a whole MC set. So I get up, I do the first night. The first night's just local guys. So it's Thursday night. So I know them all. 
I get up, I'm, I do okay, ha 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 ha, so I get a ha ha ha, but I don't destroy. And I remember thinking like, okay, that was all right, but it could be, it could, I could be much better than that. Like my nerves got the best of me that night. Okay, so, so I tweaked everything, I added things, I practiced more and I really put my head into it. And so I get up and I'm doing, so this is Friday night, this is the first night with the professional comedians coming. And I get up and I do much better. Like the show is going much better. And then I'm wrapping up and I don't know the feature act's name. Like, like so I was so focused on myself that I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. I didn't know, it, it, I had no <laughs> idea. So I was like, and, like, I'm feeling real proud. The next up, and it was like, I don't know who's next up. <laughs> like I just, and then I just hear someone go, I'm coming. <laughs> it was this woman who's from New York and she's like, I just wrote, and she said a lot of swear words. She's like, I just got on a bleep, bleep, bleep. Amtrak train for eight bleep bleep hours to get to a bleep bleep club where a bleep bleep MC doesn't even know my bleeping name. <laughs> and so, uh, but her doing that got the crowd to really laugh. And that was sort of her voice anyway, as she was crotchety. Yeah. Um, and I, oh, I thought for sure I was gonna be fired. Um, this was the worst thing that could have happened. And I apologized profusely. She was like, don't worry about it. Like she didn't care at all. Uh, not even sure the headliner noticed. And um, the owner who again, wasn't like the friendliest guy, uh, <laughs> wasn't there. So the owner wasn't there. Nice. So, but I, I ratted myself, like I kept waiting all day to get fired on Saturday. Like I kept waiting for them to call me and fire me. Cause really the only thing you have to do as an MC is know the people's names. Like you don't have to be funny, <laughs> but you have to bring up the comedians. Right. And so I was devastated. And I remember like, uh, so I walked home that night in a snowstorm in the middle of a move. And I remember being like, <gasps> and I couldn't cry, like no tears came. And I remember thinking, okay, that was probably your worst possible scenario that could have ever happened. And it doesn't make me cry. So nothing that, and it's not like I was a hard cry. You know, I cry like a normal person cries. <laughs> so right. this horrible scenario happened and I couldn't shed a tear. So I was like, all right, so no matter what happens, it's never gonna be that bad. So it gave me this confidence of like, the worst possible scenario isn't that bad. And, but so I had called the owner the next day, like, hey, I don't know if I should uh, come in or not. <laughs> like I, and then I got in and the owner was fine. The comics were fine. The staff was fine. Everybody was fine. And I pulled a waitress aside and I was like, what is going on? She's like, baby, we didn't tell on you. Like, so all the staff, like they all just kept it. Like nobody told the owner what I had done. Like as just a, in that way, like it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Like they had my back. It was a horrible thing I did, and they just all kept it to themselves, and then everything from there went on. And wow. that was my first week hosting ever, anywhere. <laughs> wow. And then that just haunts you, right? That just, uh, you just sit there. From then on, you're like, okay, what's your name? How do you say your name? Like, oh, no, I wrote it until I wrote in pen for years, until it, uh, probably, oh, for years. <laughs> Like, so I always wrote their names in pen. So if that would ever happen again on my arm, I could lift up my sleeve and I never needed it. 
but I mm. always had their name in ink on my body, physical body, <laughs> so just in case it would happen again. Because, oh boy, that was tough. And That's I, so them, like they were waiting and they, they walked down like a, um, the aisle in the middle of the club. So you could see just the outline of a body. But again, I couldn't tell if it was a man or woman. I just knew it was a person and they were here and I don't know who it is. And everybody put your hands together for the feature act. Like that, I think, is what I did. Whew. Uh, the, 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 uh, the level of horror mm -hmm. that comes over your mind when you realize you have no idea who's next is something you just can't really put into words. Nope. It's just, because, you're, again, you're like, yeah, this is great, this is great. And then all of a sudden, you could almost see the, like, oh, no. Yep. Like you see that realization on the face and then you just like, Oh no, who is next? Yep. Who is next? And it's, it's fine if it's somebody, you know, cause you can be like, Oh, it, it's that, you know, but if it's somebody you don't know. Yeah. Ooh, that's and terrible. You can't fake it. You can't fake it till you make it. Like you can't, there's nothing you can yeah. do to pull yourself out. You're in it. You're just there. You can't invent a name. You can't pretend it's somebody that you do know. It, it, it's like, yeah. my buddy. Come on. Yep. <laughs> That's when you just go, I I forgot their name. You know, like you just have to throw yourself on the sword and just go, and you feel miserable. Yep. Because you're like, oh, it's so disrespectful. It's so, you know, whatever. Like for me, it's, uh, I was, oh, those, those, those was a young, I was so self-involved because it was all about me, all about me up until that moment. And then. Then there's no law. Then I realized what my job was. My job, <laughs> yeah. it was, I did better the night before when I had a mediocre set than I did when I had a, a better set. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Hosting is a completely different animal. What's the, uh, what's the weirdest place you've ever played? Oh. They're like, oh, I don't know. They're like a weird, uh, you know, like barn or like, uh, I know in LA there's the laundromat and. San Francisco, we have a laundromat. I, I did many years in San Francisco. So there's a laundromat there as well. I don't, I can't, Brian, honestly, I can't really think of a weird, I'm sure there are. I mean, I did so many dive bars. Mm -hmm. um, so what's it like doing a laundromat? Um. I'm like just like any like uh, I didn't love it. <laughs> so it was one of those shows that was like a cool show. So it was mostly comics. So I, I yeah I don't love performing when it's just for comics. Yeah. Um, and because everybody's focused on what they're gonna do next, they're not really super caring about you. Um, and it is even though I know that it's not all about me, it's still seventy percent about me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, I can't really think of. The weirdest show I would have done. I know as soon as we hang up, I'm gonna be like, oh, it was the time I was on an airplane hangar with turkeys behind me, but. Well, and that's that's kind of, um, I mean, that just shows that there's so many that you're like, uh, you know, they don't really stick out that much. Because <laughs> you just. Yeah. And there's so many weird and awkward scenarios that we willingly walk into where we go, this is not good. Yeah. But I'm still gonna do it. Yeah. Like. You're like, I'm here. I'm going to, all right, this is, you know, the, the stage is on fire. Okay, well. Well, there's right. a lot of shows, I think, where, and I do less of them now, but it's like where you, especially as a woman, and a lot of times you go, I go all by myself, 
And it's like, what am I doing? <laughs> like I, I did a show in East LA and I didn't know the person, but it was recommended from a person I did know. So I knew, but then it's like, I am here. Uh, it was a weird area. I had never been. You didn't feel safe in the neighborhood. You had to go up these long stairs. So it was like in someone's house, in their backyard. But I didn't know that. Like, it was just like, I, I've put myself in a lot of situations where it's like, I don't feel like I should be here. This was probably not a smart call. And it always works out. But it's like, once I'm doing, like, on my way up these creaky stairs, like, why <laughs> am I? It's dark. <laughs> like, yeah. So I'm always good about telling, like, I might, I'm married. I'll tell my husband, like, this is who books it. This is where it's going to be. But yeah, so it's more that stuff where I'm like, I don't know why I'm in this situation. Yeah, why did I do this? Yeah, so it's nice that you, you know, because um, you do a lot of corporate work. And so how did that come in? Because that's a much, that's a much better, safer environment anyway. But how did you start getting involved into uh, corporate work? I think this whole thing is other comics going, hey, you have something that I like. Let me bring you with me. That, I think that's the key to winning at this game is having comics like you and bring you along. And um, so because I'm clean, because I'm a woman, like I think, and then I don't see that as much, that doesn't matter so much now. I think it's almost 50-50 men and women now. I don't know, mm-hmm. that, that might be generous. Let's say 30-70 women to men. But before I used to be the only woman on every show, like for years. So I was memorable. Again, clean is the way to make money. So like anybody can go and make their buddies laugh. Um, And you see comics do it all the time. And so I always tell new comics to do like at least write five clean minutes to start with, because I think you have to earn a dirty joke. You have to prove that you're very funny before you can do blue humor. Because yeah, I'm not a big fan of blue humor. Uh, but I, I got away from what was your question? Corporate. So, yeah. Because I'm clean. So, and I think I'm fun to be around. So I think another part of getting booked work is people want to be with you. <laughs> so if you're someone that is palatable to be on a long car trip with or to be having lunch with at the casino, um, you'll get invited. So enthusiastic. I was always like so happy for whatever opportunity I could ever get on stage. Um, down to do whatever you need me to do and clean. So that's how it starts. But corporate, I think, has its own side where like one of my other, remember I said I had two worst shows. The other one was a corporate show and it was for a big accounting firm on April 15th. So like sometimes, yeah. Why? Why would you? uh, And so I got to get down. Like I was a really new comedian at the time, but the headliner I worked with was, is a pro. And I would watch him take crowds and they would go crazy. So I was so disappointed that like they, and they didn't even warm up for him. Like they had been working like maniacs. It was nine o'clock on April 15th. They wanted to, and it was at the hard rock cafe. Like they wanted to get drunk. And it was, I had never, I've never since, and this was in my early days, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, and I just remember being so thankful I was not a headliner because he had to do 45 minutes. I did about three and he signaled me, he signaled me like, just get off. Right. <laughs> so I got, I brought him up because he, I mean, he, cause he's great. He can pull them together. Mm-hmm. And no, I mean, they're so, so sometimes with corporate stuff, they've been in meetings for eight hours and they just want to drink and eat and chat with their friends <laughs> 
and they don't want to sit and listen. So corporates aren't easier, but they do give you hotel rooms. They do give you nice money. They do treat mm -hmm. you with respect. Um, they're excited to have you. Yeah, like that. So there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a different world. And even, you know, corporate, you say you're clean, but corporate's even more stringent. Like it's more than uh, I would say churches uh, sometimes. It's really? more strict as far as what you can say. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there, uh, there's, I mean, some churches, some churches are, are very strict on, on what you, you can say, but, um, you know, for example, you in, in theory and corporate could talk about, uh, living, you know, living with your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever churches, not, not so welcome, you yeah. know? So even though it's, you know, it's not anything crazy, um, you know, there's that whole moral, uh, morality side of it that uh, you have to, you know, um, make sure you, you don't do. Uh, but, you know, corporate is just so, you know, they're, they're afraid that they're going to get fired if you're not funny. So they're, they're just like super like, what are you, you going to say? Don't say this. Don't, you know, so they, they get very, very particular, as you know. <laughs> My husband made the mistake. I took him to a show and it wasn't said, and I don't take people to shows. So I don't take civilians to shows. So my husband is allowed to come um, when it's a big show and he's with friends, not with me. Like I, cause then you think about them, you think about your partner and I don't want to do that. I want to play with comedians and I want to think of, like, I don't want to entertain and, and right. he need to be entertained. This is all me. Like he'd be fine just going and sitting, but I would worry about him. I think about him. So I took him and it was, we were traveling and we did a show and it was, one of those corporate situations where it wasn't set up well. So that's another lesson you learn is you have to say like, you have to check with what kind of audio, what's the stage going to be like? Cause these people don't book, they don't know comedy. They're just right. a planner. So they don't know. So this was in a gym, like a basketball gym. Um, there was a party happening that was like circus themed. So everybody's already drinking, already playing really fun. Like they're having an amazing time. And then I'm way at the other end of the basketball court and we all, they all have to stop having an amazing time, <laughs> sit at a table that's still really far away from me. Um, so it just was not set up for comedy. And that was my fault. I should have, I should have talked to them. I mean, it was, but yeah, I should have, I should have known better. And, and after that, then I talk about what's your setup like. Right. Um, but, and my husband was like, I just talked to the girl that booked you. She's so excited. She said she had to fight so hard to get comedy. And so just that little thing took my right. <laughs> I was like, and I, I didn't do, it didn't go well at all. Like it, it's, mm. it wasn't fun for them. I tried really hard. I deviated. I moved, I bobbed, I weaved, but that weighed on me like so much. And, uh, but, and also the set, the setting wasn't right. But, uh, oh, man, and it stinks to let people down. Yes. But I did let her down. Like, it wasn't a great show. I think it was just me. There was no opener. There was no, it was just me, and it, I didn't enjoy it. It's, and that's why you have to fight. Um, and sometimes you sound like a diva mm -hmm. uh, when, you're, when you're talking about stuff. But what I always say is, look, I want it to be the best show to make you look good. Yes. And when you reframe it that way, they're a lot more open to your suggestions as opposed to, you know, oh, this guy's just a diva and wants, you know, this over here and he wants lights and he wants, you know, 
Yeah. Well, I think she would have been more than open to it. I just didn't know better. Right. I didn't know enough to say, like, I just assumed I do your shows. I do people's shows that know what they're doing. That's what I do 95% of the time. I'm not the yeah. one who thinks about that stuff. You know, right. So this is a whole other job. Yeah. That's yeah. It's management. It's a, uh, it gets crazy. Um, so we're going to uh, switch gears in, in just a, a few minutes uh, and talk about uh, your, your organization you want to spotlight. But first, uh, a couple quick things. What, what is one of the, you talked about it briefly. What are some of the uh, biggest things that you see uh, mistakes that new comics do? Oh, okay. Easy. Oh. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, too cocky. Like, so, which, it, and if you heard my early stories, so I'm not saying that I didn't do these exact same mistakes. So I was certainly too cocky, but too cocky. Have respect, know your place. So when I met Bill Burr, I knew that I was, and I wasn't a new comic, but I knew that I wasn't supposed to monopolize the conversation. Like, have respect for the people that have been out here doing it. So, uh, yeah, have respect. Write clean. So again, don't just make your buddies laugh. Like write jokes that people that pay for tickets will laugh at. That doesn't so much apply in Los Angeles. Like at Los Angeles is a whole different beast. So I'm going to talk more. <laughs> so, but I think like work clean so that people will pay you. So, and write actual jokes. Like I think now so many comedians, like I think Louis C.K. set the bar that you have to write a new hour every year. And the greats are able to do that. But then you see the people that are just, they are not that great, but they think they're great. And then they just get up and like, I saw my girlfriend, but she had an orange sweatshirt. <laughs> I was like, what's the, what's, I mean, yeah, shouldn't have worn an orange sweatshirt today, huh? And because they're good looking and whatever are uncertain, like people laugh and it's like, that's not a joke. And it's teaching the younger comedians really bad habits. Like that guy's on a TV show, so he can babble and people are just gonna be thrilled to be in his presence and wanna know that he wore an orange sweatshirt. You, young guy, nobody cares about. So you have to earn the right to be cocky. You have to earn the respect of the audience and the other comedians. So do the work, show up, write a joke. <laughs> don't just, I don't care about your observations until you have a TV show. Or, you know what I mean? Like, you gotta have jokes. That is so, so, so important. I say that all the time. Tell the joke. They just want jokes. Yeah. That's all they want. The audience just wants jokes. They just want punchlines. So get to the joke. It's so important. I can't stress that enough. You were there. Thing. So this is the other thing that I'll tell new comics, and I know that I did it. So you're filling time. So you have to listen to it. And there's so many extra words that people put in in a new. So then I was walking up the stairs and my mom was always like, don't go up those stairs because at the top of the stairs, your grandma's sleeping and you're going to wake her up. But that has nothing to do with the joke. It's just like, and so like, and I hate that wallpaper. It's the dumbest wallpaper. But then I went upstairs and saw my boyfriend. <laughs> it's like, so right. all this stuff just to get you to the boyfriend who's the joke. So it's like, just like when you write, like I remember in my first college writing class, they were like, take out everything that is not necessary for the story. Same thing yep. with jokes. So, so, so good. So good advice. So good. So absolutely true. It, what What is important to that story? Yes. None of the stuff, get rid of it. 
Yeah. Or if you're going to do it, then then go off and write about the grandmother and go off and write about the wallpaper and the stairs and, and have the punchlines. Yeah, you can absolutely make that grandma funny and that wallpaper funny and your mom talking about stairs funny. Yeah. So take time to put in little jokes along the way and then we're all all aboard. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how you develop a lot of material quickly. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, then it's your boyfriend, make it your brother. Like, you know, like, so people, I think when they're writing, they're too true. Like, and again, 95% of it's true. But if you don't need to know that my grandma was sleeping at the top of the stairs, I don't need to tell you that. You, you right. don't need to know that. Even though I, I it's a big part to me, it's not a big part to the story. Right. It's, it's funny because uh, I have a comedian friend and we talk about it and we discussed it on here. And, um, I always, she's always like, well, well, this is the truth and this is what happened. And I go, yeah, but that's, you don't need that. That's not the funny part. And uh, she's like, yeah, but I want to write about the truth. And I said, well, you either have to, you know, adapt and make it, you know, exaggerate and enhance and embellish, or you're going to have to live the funniest life ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, if that's how you're going to develop your material, it's all based on truth, then you need the funniest life ever. When it's just storytelling, it's like you're at a bar with friends and you're telling them what happened to you at work, but you don't be like, and then I clocked in late and I had tuna fish for lunch. And like, nobody wants to hear that in your bar story. Right. So you want, just because you have a microphone does not mean that they have to listen to all these exactly. that aren't funny. Exactly. And uh, once again, we are talking with uh, Rachel McDowell, uh, extremely funny comedian. Uh, you can check out her website at rachelmcdowell.com. Uh, you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Rachel A. McDowell. Um, definitely check that out. And we are going to talk a little bit about uh, an organization that um, you wanted to spotlight. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, Catskill Animal Sanctuary. Yeah. Um, and real quick, my website, I'm working on it with a friend. So it might be down. So we're revamping the whole thing. I'm a horrible marketer. And <laughs> that's what. <laughs> so well, thankfully, <laughs> comedy, there's no marketing involved. Yeah. So a friend, is, a friend gave me tough love and we're working on my website. Um, so if it looks weak now, it's going to be a lot better. And uh, yeah, so that's happening. And so Catskill Animal Sanctuary is in Woodstock, New York. And a friend of mine that I used to work with, um, so she was in the corporate world for a really long time and she quit her job. Her and her partner live in Woodstock now and they're vegans. So the partner brought veganism and my friend Danielle hopped on board. And so this is an animal sanctuary where they take farm animals. And so they go to auctions and they buy farm animals or people bring them sad cases. And then these animals just live beautiful lives out on a farm in New York and like her office mate, she had a turkey who recently passed away of natural causes, but so she shared her office with a turkey and uh, it's just beautiful. It's just kind and lovely and it costs a lot of money to feed farm animals. And they have a great website and great Instagram that my friend does. She's the fundraiser. Um, and for when the, when the pandemic first hit and the quarantine first hit, they were doing, and I'm sure they still are, where you can have goats join your Zoom call. So she had offered, <laughs> yeah, so we've been donors to them for a while. And he was like, hey, do you want me to have a goat join a Zoom call? And so I had all my friends with kids and their kids came onto a Zoom call. And then all of a sudden there was just a goat 
and she walked us through a tour of the whole place and we saw sheep and we saw the cows and heard stories about all these animals and um, and I'm not a vegetarian. I try not to, I, I monitor meat, so I'm not a vegetarian, but I still really respect people that throw their lives into making animals live in peace. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah and you, you can check them out, uh, Catskill Animal Sanctuary at uh, www.casanctuary.org. That's casanctuary.org. And if you uh, want to go to join your Zoom call. Definitely check them out. That sounds fun. Right? Yeah, like all of a sudden there's just a goat in the middle of your business call. So they should do that for like business calls. They should also do it for like the Zoom comedy shows. Yeah, <laughs> should. they should. Though that would be that would be fun. Well, <laughs> uh, again, check it out, Catskill Animal Sanctuary. And uh, Rachel, thank you so much for for coming on and uh, joining us today and telling us uh, about your story uh, and and about the uh, your organization that you uh, love to to help and just sharing your knowledge with everybody. And I want to thank the viewers and listeners for, for checking us out. And again, if you want to follow me, Comedy Brian on YouTube, uh, on, uh, where am I on? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch, twitch.tv slash Comedy Brian. If you have questions, comments, be sure and uh, throw them in here. And uh, again, I can't thank you enough. And I hope we get to uh, work together again soon. Me Let's too. do something fun. Yeah, and I just did to you. I just thought you're one of my favorites and you are just a joy to work with. You are true blue business comedy. You love to write. You love to talk about it. You're so funny, so skilled on stage. So I just wanted to toss back some of the compliments. Oh. You're, you're a true blue pro doing something like this. Like, I can't wait to listen to the other podcasts. And I'm real honored that you, that you won, that you book me and encourage me. You encourage me a lot more than you know you do. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind. I, like I said, I love working with you. You're, again, one of the, the good people in this industry, and it's it's hard to find. So when, uh, when I find them, I, I try to keep them close. So. It feels nice. It feels nice to be brought into that hug with you, right? Exactly. It is tough, and it's just when you meet people like you, it makes it a lot less tough. Oh, well, thank you. Well, again, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, and, and uh, let's do this again soon.